0: Watching on movies with Rebecca and Jason.
1: Are you gonna
0: love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the
2: binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest streaming movie releases. I am Jason Leroy.
1: And I'm Rebecca Larte. and today we have, what, one, two, three, four, five, seven movies to talk about. The King of Staten Island, Irresistible, The Five Bloods, Lucky Grandma, Shirley. Miss you Teeth, and Baby Teeth. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consuming moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And Send It Back means... Quarantine is too short for that mess.
2: Uh, I also want to make it clear that the name that you said sixth in that list was Miss Juneteenth, not Mr. Teeth, which is what it sounded like to me. You're like, Mr. Oh, Teeth really? and Baby <laughs> Teeth.
1: <laughs> They're both... <laughs> which would make one great movie mr teeth and baby teeth but yes you're right it's miss juneteenth and baby teeth
2: mr teeth and the immediate sequel baby teeth Uh, (laughs) it's like the boss it's like the boss baby but all teeth
1: Um, (laughs) like a nightmare
2: like a nightmare yeah exactly uh rebecca we have a very special guest uh, this month. It is a guest who technically has previously made her binge debut on another episode.
0: Mm. But the
2: episode was lost to history, uh, which is perhaps appropriate because she is herself both an historian and very old. She and is, I think she's lost. She, she's not sure where she is right now, um, but we will take advantage while she's lucid. Uh, she is a musician. She is an academic. She is a gentleman. She is our Mima. She is Jen Chachna. Jen, thank you for joining us here today.
3: Oh, thank you so much. <clears throat> Sorry, my 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 supply. <laughs> 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 oh, <laughs> so <boy>, <laughs> cracked up again. Um, thank you so much for having me and uh, for that glorious introduction. It cannot be topped.
1: <laughs> I need to say something that I and I think this is what maybe. Uh, not to, like, place blame or, you know, not take accountability for my lack of pronunciation around Miss Juneteenth, but I just saw something so shocking, which is, um, Jen, you're smoking in the house? People still can do that? Is that legal? Hey.
3: (laughs) I don't come down to where you work or you live.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm so jealous, and, like, I'm like, is this 2020? Am I... Oh my God, I'm so jealous. We
2: should should note that Jen is joining us from London. So, this is our first ever uh, transatlantic guest.
3: Very excited. It's it's a wonderful thing. And yet, you know, I live alone. I've got uh, wood floors, high ceilings, lots of ventilation. It's amazing. It's the perfect perfect crime.
2: Now, Jen, when you were uh, back here in San Francisco last winter, or possibly the winter before that—the winter that was—it was a twenty eighteen, I think—you uh, joined us to tape an episode in which we reviewed a little movie called *Destroyer*.
3: I have not recovered from the trauma. Um, <laughs> there is a civil lawsuit forthcoming. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh and you know it's it's too bad that we lost that episode because of course first of all we had you here in person in our little recording den and uh, and secondly we had just all three watched my oscar screener of destroyer uh which if 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 listeners will recall is the sort of misbegotten nicole kidman as jerry blank as a detective (laughs) uh gritty drama from several years back
1: as unlucky grandma as, as, <laughs> as Eileen Warnos.
2: As Eileen Warnos. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: so, uh, so that would have been the first time that our uh, our listeners had had their introduction to you, but instead, it's now. Uh, you are my dear friend of 15 years. Uh, you've known Rebecca just a few years less than that. Uh, you and I used to work together and spent many wonderful nights here in San Francisco, but now you've been in London for the last, I'm going to say it's been seven years now?
3: Yeah, seven and a half. Whoa.
2: That's Time wild.
3: Flies. Yeah, it's nuts. That is wild. It's, it's nuts. I and
2: miss uh, oh, we miss you too. Oh. And uh, And no matter how far apart we all are and how different our lives have become, we all have one thing in common, which is that we all... Crammed these movies in in the last two days.
1: <laughs> it's funny to think just all around the world, the three of us sweating and watching. And I think Jason and I just watched Baby Teeth just now.
2: No, uh, you, I watched it yesterday. I watched everything oh, last night.
1: It was Miss Juneteenth. You were like, I'm watching it, and I had just oh, yeah. finished it.
2: Yeah, we oh, pivoted so from, sweet. Mr., mit, from Mr. Teeth to Baby Teeth. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Although, you, you know, there's one
3: thing, though, it's in this world we're in where we now basically only see each other over video. I mean, I could be next door and you wouldn't know.
0: Mm-hmm. It's oh, very know. true.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, is somebody smoking next door? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Rebecca would be pounding on the wall being like, are we
1: allowed to do that? <laughs> can I? Can you give me
2: one? Can I borrow one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with this vaping bullshit.
1: <laughs> it's true. I am.
2: Oh my God. Uh, well, uh, Jen, how has your quarantine in London been going?
1: Oh God.
3: Um, <laughs> well, you know, I think it's been like a lot of people. It's been up and down. Um, extremely lucky and grateful that my health, the health of my friends and loved ones, everyone's been okay. So that is, you know, first and foremost, the he's just pr- biggest thing I'm, I'm grateful for and thankful for. Um, but you know, uh, living alone and, and being in, in a quarantine locked in down situation, it's it's hard, you know, it's 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 alienating and I think we are all at the point of just screen burnout and it not it it's a great way to stay connected, but it's nothing takes the place of actually being in people's presence and being with the people that you care about. Um and it's you know, I think it's hard also, whether it's work or, you know, from my situation, um, school work is when you don't have a separation between your workspace and your living space, like that's, that can be really tricky too maintaining focus, maintaining inspiration, enjoying what you do. Um, you know, just the concepts of productivity is, is, odd and time is what is time anymore do do any of us have a concept of it (laughs) no it's just seven
1: minutes it takes to finish a cigarette (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I I have a question as a as a musician how has it been for you
3: Oh, I I've written a, an idea for one song in the past month. It's just everything I have <laughs> to offer goes into schoolwork, and after that, it's I just feel depleted. And you know, when your environment doesn't change and you don't have new experiences and new things to really bring up, I mean, mm-hmm. you're just sort of rehashing old, old old ideas. And and so yeah, now unfortunately, with a lot of people I know, we're all very I'm I'm envious of the people who've been able to maintain creativity um during lockdown but as things are easing i'm you know that's starting to change but it's it's frustrating here in london i mean it's people are kind of acting generally like the pandemic's over and that it's not happening like when i go to the grocery store i'll be one of a few in a mask and it's just like <laughs> mm. you know <laughs> you know yeah. england has been awful it's been really awful in its response um, abysmally awful you know we have the highest uh just compared to Europe as a whole we are our numbers are i think ahead in some ways and it's um kind of just terrifying to see people just be like oh well that was the thing that happened okay um they I, I think um, i think early july is when restaurants and bar- and bars may open and i'm just like we're not we're not even there yet mm. <laughs> but wow. um but you know, again, on the positive, it—I'm just grateful for you know health and happiness, you know, of people I care yeah. about, and hoping that you know other people don't have to suffer any more losses than they already have. Really.
2: Well, you know, thank you for that perspective. Fortunately, Rebecca and I don't know anything about living in a country that's not handling its response to <laughs> the virus well. So it's really wild to hear that exotic point of view.
3: We, we... I know, I know.
2: Because, uh, as it's... you might know, we we crushed it here. It's gone. So, and, you
3: know, <laughs> yeah. Because you know, if you stop testing, then the, the numbers go way down. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> I it's mean, a miraculous it, it thing. has it has to be nice for you guys, though, being in the Bay Area and California, where they actually have been ahead of the sort of national conversation and the Some national. Some parts effort. of
1: California, yeah. yeah. But yes, the Bay yeah. Area has been pretty. Um pretty good there was some talk of opening up this weekend but i think they shut everything back down pretty quickly i think we all got the text messages on friday saturday saying never mind (laughs) or i think it just said oops and then i had that shrug emoji which i think was their way of saving instead of sending like one in spanish one in english one in chinese they just sent the shrug emoji which is kind of an international symbol of oops (laughs) right
2: they followed that up with the mask emoji and we're like okay (laughs) we are here.
1: We understand. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, the cry, yeah, face, emoji. <laughs> yeah, the cry <laughs> face emoji. Why don't they actually just do it all in emoji now that I think about it? Because they send them, as we talked about previously, I get them in all the languages. I must have signed up to a different list than Jason does. Jason gets them only <laughs> in English. I get them in, like, Tagalog. I get them in Spanish. And just send them an emoji.
2: Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Um, Skull crossbones.
1: And, no sign the toast of the two champagnes and a hamburger (laughs) done everybody gets it maybe throw in like the international foods as well
2: (laughs) Ooh, yeah see and that is multiculturalism Mm -hmm. uh as we're taping this it is june 28th and uh and this morning was when it was announced that gavin newsom was closing down all the bars in la again um because because la has been a disaster yeah, uh, their their numbers have been going up and up and up and up and up and up and up, and, up. and um and it's been I it's yeah I mean I want to think that California in general has handled this well, um, but then I'll see you know footage from L.A. of like all the all the fucking gay boys are all out of the bars, um, just yeah. carrying on like nothing's happening, and uh, so it it's tough. But certainly in the Bay Area, I feel like people are being very responsible, generally speaking. But uh, so, so Jen, if, if things are going so terribly in England, um, is there still also an attitude in England that the U.S. is totally blowing it, or is the is the U.K. like, well, we're blowing it, the U.S. is blowing it, we're in it together?
3: Um, I mean, I think, I, th- I think, it's kind of impossible to look at the U.S. and not think that they're blowing it on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, you know, it, where where do you draw the line, really? Um. But you know, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not seeing in the new, news like any kind of comparison. Well, this is what's going on here, but that's going on there, so we're okay in comparison. I mean, you know, it's impossible not to be critical of both.
1: I wasn't sure if this had happened or not that um, the EU, I guess, which does not include England, but is now banning American travelers since we are a hotspot. Mm-hmm. I, I saw, is that, that. True? I saw is
3: that. I saw. Yeah. I saw. I saw. I saw that some countries are going to, uh, yeah, some countries in the EU are banning American travelers because of.
2: Well, yeah, I think it's I think it's not some countries. I'm pretty sure it's like officially like when the EU's list, because I think they update the list maybe every month or something, uh-huh. of which uh, of which countries are restricted travel, and or which countries rather are permitted to travel, and then the US is going to be not on that list. Which when I saw, I was like, good. Because we need to understand that there are consequences. Right. It's, such, it's so the American way to think that you can just do whatever you want and there's no consequences. And fuck anyone who tries to make you face them. And the EU is putting its foot down. And to that yeah. I say, huzzah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> huzzah.
2: <laughs> huzzah. Huzzah.
1: Is this where we give a quick plug to the great?
2: Yes. Rebecca and I have both been watching the great and we enjoy it very much. Thank you. <laughs> End of plug. Um, well, uh, with all that happy talk aside, we do have seven movies to get through. We do. Uh, And, uh, and Jen, you, uh, we're going to start with two that you didn't get a chance to watch for reasons that you can articulate in those conversations. (laughs) Uh, After that, uh, you have seen the remaining five. Rebecca and I have seen all seven and we are ready to go.
1: Let's do it. Let's start with the first one. Um, quite the American one, which is called the King of Staten Island. Scott has been a case of arrested development since his firefighter dad died. He spends his days smoking weed and dreaming of being a tattoo artist until events force him to grapple with his grief and take his first steps forward in life. So this is uh, the big Pete Davidson, Judd Apatow film. Um, We had recently reviewed a, a Pete Davidson film, Jason.
2: Yes, yes, we did. If you're hoping I can think of the title, I can't. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you can't I,
2: I was thinking of it in the last few days and I was like ah oh, well you're really going to need to talk about that Pete Davidson movie again but I don't remember what it was called
1: uh, it was called now I don't remember um... <laughs> it doesn't matter
2: it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter uh, but yeah whenever we reviewed that one um, there was the sense that like okay this is Pete Davidson's big uh, big debut this is his big movie moment this is the moment where he's first going to be tested as a movie star and everyone can oh. a referendum. Go
1: was on. it called Big Time Adolescence?
2: There's the one. There it is. Uh, I was nowhere near that in my mind. Not even close. It's not
1: a very memorable name. King of Staten it Island, is. however, very that. good name.
2: And that's and that's how you know it's a Judd Apatow movie. Because uh, it, it's both higher quality and longer. Uh, so <laughs> so that is that's how you know the difference. So it's funny. So essentially, Pete Davidson is having two different kind of coming out movie star moments one very very small indie one which was that one and then this much bigger one um this out of all the movies that have been um sort of made available streaming in lieu of theaters being open this is probably this is bar none one of the biggest titles um of the last few months like this is you know a Judd Apatow movie is an event every time yeah, and uh, so this would have been one of those events, and instead it is um, available to rent for 19.99. Jen, do you have thoughts on that?
3: I have. I don't understand how it's okay during a pandemic, and like so many people are having their wages either furloughed or cut, or don't have access to them, and thinking it's okay to rent a movie for 20 dollars, or I'm sorry, 19.99. That one cent really tricks the mind into not thinking you're spending $20. I mean, I think it's obscene when you even have to pay that much at an actual theater where you get an experience. Um, so yeah, by by, uh, my, my moral high ground, now, I just, I think it's so fucked up. Like I just, 1999 for a movie rental is just absolutely ridiculous. And I get that these things are big budget and I get that people want to make the money back but just have a heart and have a conscience during this time is two mm-hmm. cents. Like, unless I rent your movie and you're sending someone to my house with, like, a genie bottle and, like, tickets to an opium den and a harem, then I don't want to pay that much for, I mean, you know, maybe all those things well, are required. But I'm just saying, like.
1: I thought you were well, going to say, like, a we, popcorn I and know. a soda, but okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, people from Jen's generation really want a lot more for their
1: money. <laughs> uh,
2: just, just you know that famous world war ii saying you better have an opium den
1: uh, <laughs> opium just, den just, in every garage <laughs>
2: very very roosevelt era ideals coming it's, from uh, from jen
1: it is the american
3: dream okay have we lost <laughs> sight of this america, yeah, has an exper- america as an experiment might have, might have failed but let's hold on to the dreams we were built upon <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes yeah, like a genie's bottle and an opium den I get it. I will say this about that price point. It is certainly for for one person to watch a movie by themselves, that's an uncomfortable amount of money to pay. I do think it starts to make more sense if you have like the more people you have to watch it, because of course you're not all each having to pay it. Uh, But yes, certainly for one person to want to watch a movie by themselves, $20 is a truly ridiculous number. Uh, With that said... Uh, some movies are more worth that price point than others. And I would say that this one is a bit more worth the price point than the next movie we'll review.
1: price, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just like on, like my foot's on the brake until we start talking about Irresistible. Go on. <laughs> if you're going to bring it up early, I'm ready to go. But uh, agree. I, yeah, I sort of fall in the middle. Like I, I do see that it is a lot for one person, um, for two people or three people, or if you you have a, f- a family of, of many, um, it ends up being cheaper. Uh, you don't have to drive. Um, it, it, I wonder if there is like a, I don't know, like a net count, right? Like how many people, I guess you can't really tell from Netflix, like how many people are in your household or, or that they don't have that kind of, of data. But if you're like, you know, I guess it wouldn't be Netflix either, but, um, what is? How does it balance out? Does it balance out in that it's, like, profit-wise? I feel like it probably is fairly even. Um, and you can watch it multiple times within, like, the 48-hour rental period, which is something that more than you get in the theaters. I just feel like at the theaters lately, it's it ends up being, like, upwards of $15. Um, and so, I don't know. Basically, so what, what I'm saying, saying is that Jen's you're wrong. wrong and you're cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I
3: mean, but I anyway. you know, I mean, on, on so many levels you I mean, I guess one thing I didn't think about the multiple viewer option, but then if you think about kind of, you know, as the movies are now, you can buy them for nineteen nineteen or buy them for even, you know, fourteen ninety nine and rent them for three ninety nine. So why, you know, it I I just feel like it's this that movies are trying to do to remind you that we're not a straight-to-VOD thing. Like, look at our price point. We are a legitimate movie, and it's... Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And I I feel like it's posturing. It's just economic posturing so that you know this was not a straight... This would not have been a straight-to-VOD thing. And...
2: Saying that it's not a hooker, it's a call girl.
1: I feel (laughs) like if, for me, though, any of the movies that we've watched on the show that have been 1999... Um, if they, if, if I wasn't doing it for the show, I would have waited. I can't think of one that is, that I wanted to see so badly that I would have been like, we're doing it tonight. Oh, actually there was one. Um, my girlfriend wanted to see Emma and like, it was also one of those things where we had seen the trailers in the theaters right before and we're like, we're going to see it when it comes out. And then it was like, I want to feel like I'm not in a pandemic. So I'm going to like pay the money so we can see it. But other than that one, um, I feel like all of the rest of them would have waited
2: except i think never rarely sometimes always was the best movie that we've reviewed on the show that was doing the 1999 rental point.
1: Oh, yeah. I I yeah. I mean cuz it's for the show i like I, i'm kind of like whatever and i don't <laughs> notice which ones are and which ones aren't which is uh, privilege and also not because i have to because jason makes me and doesn't pay me. <laughs> but anyway, it's back true. to I the do, movie. I do
2: i do hoard all of our binge profits. I mean, it makes um, but, it more
3: expensive, then, because then it's unwaged un- un- labor as well. So, I mean, it really, like.
2: <laughs> oh, my true. God. Okay. So, circling <laughs> back to the King of Staten Island. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, we have here the second movie in a row, Pete Davidson has made, uh, in which he is, you know, essentially playing a variation on his persona. And, uh, and this time, it's much more uh, bald because it is more openly based on his actual life story. Uh, growing up in New York with a firefighter dad who died in a line, uh, line of service. Um, although in this movie, um, they lightly fictionalize it and also make it less heavy by having it not be in 9-11, which is how his father actually passed away. Um, we have Marissa Tomei playing his mother, who is uh, you know just doing her best to deal with still being a widow after all these years and having her kind of adult son, who's an underachiever. Uh, And she begins to, uh, she meets a a guy who is a, also a firefighter and they begin to have a bit of a romance, but this creates a lot of tension um, between her and her son and Pete Davidson's character. And that's sort of the core conflict of the movie. Uh, I thought this 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 really this movie really makes Big Time Adolescence all the more unnecessary uh, mm. in a way because I think that it's just in general more successful uh, telling a fairly similar story. Uh, and Pete Davidson in this I think really does I felt him really digging deep with his performance here. Like I really felt like he like Big Time Adolescence was a much more kind of surface level performance, and here you can really feel him trying to like keep his guard down and be vulnerable on camera.
1: Right. Big time adolescence, he was you know, he wasn't necessarily like the vehicle. The the vehicle was the the young boy who was kind uh-huh. of seeing himself and his future bounced off of what Pete Davidson had to offer in terms of which was also a complicated character. Um a complicated character, but also tracks very closely to what we know of Pete Davidson. So maybe not that complicated for him to play, but complicated in that it's someone that you feel fondly for, and you could see the potential and you you root for, but um, has an inability to, you know, take accountability and, and take the next step and move on. Um, and in this movie, you see the same thing, but you, it is a lot darker where you do see what he struggles with um, and how hard it is for him and how much he doesn't believe in himself and how, mm-hmm high that and strong that wall is to um you know his sister tries his his mother tries um his girlfriend tries to make him see who he can be and his potential and he is completely incapable of seeing it and um I mean I don't know I don't know how much I know about Pete Davidson I I know what's been you know told to me through Saturday Night Live and through um you know reading some interviews and articles but um if 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 that is all true, I think this is probably his last opportunity to play this person that he seems to have been for the past 10 or 20 years. And I'm, I hope it's very meta, right? Like I hope that he changes and then we can see the stories he has to tell as he changes. Like I'm okay if he continues to tell these stories that are super autobiographical, so long as he continues to be a dynamic and interesting and an insightful character. Um, So like that's, that's really what I'm hoping for. And, and you know, watching his last stand up, he's he seems to be he seems to be growing. He seems to be recognizing things about himself mm-hmm. and the way he engages with the world. And um, I really appreciated this. But this is the kind of the last one I can see about the lovable <laughs> goof. Um, Fuck up. With a heart of gold.
2: Yeah. But uh, speaking of which, Jen. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you lovable goof. Uh,
3: <laughs> I got so lost. I'm like, are you talking about me? Or are you talking about Pete? I can't tell the difference anymore. <laughs> um, I, I did not watch this, um, largely because of the uh, aforementioned price point. Um, but I, you know, I, it's weird. Like I, I neither like nor dislike Davidson. And well, actually, I can't even say that I don't like him. I just, do you ever have people that you just have a very neutral response to? And I know that if I watched him, and especially after listening to your past episodes where you talked about his comedy special and you talked about big time adolescence, like I think I have no doubt I'd probably enjoy it, would appreciate his performance. And probably, I absolutely see, Rebecca, what you're saying about he's kind of at his limit for how much he can put into this character and, and maintain, keep it interesting and, and capture attention. Um, but yeah, I just, I didn't really feel compelled to, and, and again, the Long Island accent, I do not want to pay that to, to listen to that. Um, if someone wants to pay me to listen to that, that would be one thing, but, uh, that, that is a commitment. That is an audio commitment. I was not ready to make.
2: Well, you know, I'll just say that if there are any listeners from Staten Island, uh what Jen just said does not reflect the views of this no. podcast uh please go to her directly uh we, <laughs> i was just watching um the season finale of jersey shore family vacation the other day <laughs> uh and uh and it ended uh it ended with the wedding of um initial uh, castmate and then eventual once again castmate angelina pavarnik Uh, And uh, at her wedding, the other girls, uh, Jenny, Nicole, and Dina gave her a toast where they tried to roast her. And they made a joke about Staten Island, um, where they just said you are the dump to our island. And, uh, and the room was entirely Staten Islanders, and they were booed off the stage, uh, and essentially out of the venue. Uh, so, uh, so I, I I learned from that the hard way not to not to trifle with Staten Island. So again, Jen's opinions are hers and hers alone.
1: Hers alone. Uh. <laughs> One thing we talked about in the house was if this wasn't written by and starring Pete Davidson, what would I think of this movie? What would we think of this movie? And I would have a much lower bar if this was about some other guy who I didn't already have a soft spot for and like n- know in real life that he is like a considerate thoughtful like on the right side of politics and a uh, funny guy that I, I don't know that I think halfway through I would be like fuck this guy um, he's a coward get your shit together I think it would be a lot harder on him which is like kind of speaks to a lack of empathy we have about you know people we don't know in general Um, But I think I would have a much especially, you know, just given lately with um, everything going on around George Floyd, there's like, oh, there's this like, you know, white kid who has this loving mother and sure he had this like hard thing growing up. And but why is he like fucking around and being such a shitty person to his friends and his girlfriend Um, that I think that would have changed my opinion of the movie significantly.
2: Yeah, um, I feel like, and this movie also has the Judd Apatow hallmark of, you know, being a good 30, 40 minutes too long. (laughs) uh, Where, you know, and it's always, you can always pinpoint like the exact moment that takes a turn into that Apatow timeline because you're like, you hit that point where you're like, okay, here's where the story will naturally wrap up. Good, good movie, everyone. Great work. And then it digs its heels in and launches a whole new tangent um, which in this movie is the when stabbing. he moves into the fire. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> when he mo- to me, it was like when he moves into the firehouse, um, hmm. where I was like, oh, yeah. okay, like now, now and because I was like, okay, that's just going to be like a quick, like, tie it up. Oh, wait, he's living in the firehouse. But then that's like a whole 30-minute portion of the movie is him living in the firehouse. And at that point, the movie's been on for like an hour and 40 minutes. And you're like, oh, okay, so this is actually, this is going to keep going for a while longer. Okay. I, f-
1: I felt like that was... Necessary to the movie, though. I feel like the the thing that was necessary about this growth, and maybe it's like similar to what he felt at Saturday Aunt Live or something, was adults in his life who are not his mother, um, like believing in him for his own values and or his own like value, and like holding him accountable to things, and like treating him like an adult. And mm-hmm. I think that was there's that whole point of the movie where. I think the most interesting part of the movie is, like, this relationship between his mother, Marissa Tomei, and the guy she starts dating, who is played by Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Um... And that, there are a lot of feelings about that, right? Um, he comes in, you don't know if he's like a good guy. He starts like treating um, Pete Davidson's character's name is Scott. Um, you know, like, why aren't you moving out of the house? Why aren't you doing things? And, and so I, I was very conflicted. I, I was like, who is this guy coming in and <laughs> telling him what to do? I was very anti-stepdad. Um, this, his, this guy is also a firefighter. So that makes it weird in a lot of ways as well.
2: He's got a bad mustache.
1: He's got a terrible mustache, um, and and then they get into this big argument, and there's this whole rift with him and and the boyfriend and the mother, and I, that's where the movie takes a completely different turn. I I, I think that um, kind of what you see happen there and their relationship change is was was important to the movie. I think the last last part where there's this whole like stabbing situation and, like ends up kind of going on a bit long, but
2: I forgot entirely about that. And and to be clear. I'm not saying that the firefighter part, the firehouse part, is not important. I just feel like the movie's flow, the movie has basically completed its sort of narrative arc uh, in a, uh, just as you experience the movie. It feels like it's ready to start wrapping up, and then it launches like a whole new half-hour part of the movie.
1: Mm-hmm. So I do
2: think it's important, but I think it maybe it took too long to get there.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, so... I would say.
1: Closing up the f- the first part of the movie a little sooner uh, and launching into that earlier would have would have tightened it up a little bit.
2: Yeah, there's there's a, a long it spends a very long time showing us Scott just like fucking around and not doing much <laughs> before uh, yeah before it gets going. What did but, you uh, think about
1: uh, Belle Polly? You you love her from um, Diary of a Teenage Girl. She plays the girlfriend in this movie. I I loved the whole character and like how much she loves Staten Island and how she's like uh, goes to get shit done and is like. Mm-hmm. I don't know not trying to be uh is like just like relatable enough in that group of friends where she doesn't want to like tattoo children but she's also not like I want to be a movie star and she like can bring him up just a little bit in a in a way that makes him want to be better
2: yeah I would say my favorite parts of this movie were Marissa Tomei and Belle Powley um okay
1: that's probably
2: <laughs> because they were the actresses right um, but, uh, but Belle Pally, especially just knowing that she's British, um, just imagining her research to play this <laughs> Staten Island character, which she really tears into with great gusto. Um, <laughs> although, although not over the top, like she doesn't, she doesn't make it like this caricature. Um, you know, like she just like, she just gets certain sort of mannerisms, uh, and the accent and everything. And then the wardrobe and hair and makeup does a fair bit of the work as well. Yes. Um, but uh, I'm like, I watch enough reality TV takes place in Staten Island to know that she was nailing it. So, <laughs> uh, no, she was fantastic. She was fantastic. Um, so all in all, I think this was a solid Judd Apatow character study comedy. Um, I think that Pete Davidson rose to the occasion and, and really dug deep with the performance. And agree, we don't need any more Pete Davidson origin stories in movies. Uh, so... Let's see if he can, if he's still interested in playing characters that are not essentially himself. Um, but uh, as far as movies where he does play himself, this is the one to watch.
1: I'm giving it a binge it.
2: I would give it a consume plus.
1: I like how we just kind of started using this plus and minus thing without ever like <laughs> making it official. But
2: okay, yes, well, take Jen, it. Jen, Jen, as a long time listener, how do you feel about the pluses and minuses?
3: I like it. I like it. I mean, I think I enjoy the simplicity of the uh, (laughs) three-tiered scale, but sometimes you need more nuance. So I support it. Exactly. Good.
2: Thank you. Thank
3: you.
1: Um, It is available on Apple, Amazon, Google, and it's rated R for language and drug use throughout sexual content and some violence and bloody images. Movie number two, Irresistible. A democratic strategist helps a retired veteran run for mayor in a small conservative Midwest town. Well, that was a very concise summary.
2: <laughs> yeah, I started using the IMDb summaries uh, for this oh, script. Okay. So they all they all run a little bit shorter. Fair. Uh, because, you know, we usually wind up restating a lot of it during the review anyway.
1: So. That is true. That is true. Um, in this case, the Democratic Strategist, played by Steve Carell, a movie written and directed by Jon Stewart, retired veteran, run, played by Chris Cooper... Yeah small conservative miss western town played by will Sasso
2: <laughs> and that that about says it uh, send so it moving back on yep yeah.
1: <laughs> so
2: was Becca,
1: furious you... with this movie
2: oh boy let's hear it
1: this movie I and and the the post watching um my girlfriend said what would make this movie better and I, I was like, if it didn't talk down to the audience as much, I think that is the the core issue with this movie is that it is an insults the audience. Um, it is, it felt like a, the Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial um, in it's like simplistic rendering of uh, people and people in small towns, people in big cities. Uh, Steve Carell's character was everything that I hated about the office Which is most of the things about The Office. Um, I don't even understand why Rose Burns' character was there. Um, I I could just, I don't know. This was a nightmare.
2: Yeah. Um, I loved it. No, I'm kidding. Um, I would think that a a person
1: whose favorite movie is Citizen Ruth would find this the biggest insult.
2: Oh, yeah. No, this is, this is, this is, yeah, this is no Citizen Ruth. This is no Alexander Payne movie. Um, this is a movie that I feel like what Jon Stewart did here was, this is also a difficult movie to talk about because it has a giant twist at the very end that sort of directly impacts everything, at least for me, everything I had been thinking about the movie critically. Um, it basically like turns the tables on you right at the end and says, oh, that was the joke all along.
1: It also um, but, was not very easy to understand that twist. I still have so many questions about how that twist even worked. Like, if, but they, but money was spent on things. I to say high level of like that. I don't think that it could work like that. But so go on. I, I
2: I feel like John Stewart thought of the twist first, and the punchline specifically of the twist, and then he reverse engineered the story from there. And that's why the entire story leading into the twist is so threadbare and so uninspired and so cliche and so derivative. Um, because it, you know, once you get to the twist, it's kind of it, the whole thing is one big gotcha. Um, but then you're like, well, what the fuck did I just spend the last hour 40 watching then? Um, because like there's nothing enjoyable about what you watch that entire time with the exception of Rose Byrne. Uh, Rose Byrne is, I mean, to your point, yes, um, you know, as a character, I'm not saying is great, but her performance is hilarious. She just cuts through the sort of general fog of the movie's mediocrity with her comic timing. So I enjoyed her and her alone. Otherwise, the movie almost feels like it's written by Steve Carell's character. Like it feels (laughs) the whole time, basically up until this twist at the end, the whole time you're watching and you're thinking, Oh my God, this movie is so patronizing. Like this movie is so incredibly condescending in the way that it's depicting the, this small town and the people who live in it. And then like, it is setting up these other things that you're feeling uneasy about, like a potential sort of like flirtation between Steve Carell's character and the daughter of Chris Cooper, who's played by Mackenzie Davis in who is of course half his age. And you're just like, okay, like this, how is this movie not aware of how gross all this is? And again, this is all leading up to a punchline that makes you look at all in a different way. But it doesn't make it worth it.
1: It doesn't. Uh-huh. And it doesn't even really undo all of it that much.
2: No. No. Um, and, you know, reading Jon Stewart, this is not his first movie that he directed. He previously made a political drama called Rosewater, um, starring Gail Garcia Bernal. Um, And that movie was um, was just a straight ahead drama and it did not feel like Jon Stewart at all. Um, And so when I saw that he was making a political satire, I'm like, oh, good. You know, that's he's that's more his territory. That's that's his, you know, his calling card. But wow, I think he's maybe just not a great filmmaker. Uh, No, I, I don't know that it's his calling. I don't know that he should continue pursuing it. Because I mean, this movie is just pretty terrible. Um, and, you know, and reading these interviews with him, uh, uh, out here on the, on the press trail for this movie, um, you know, I just feel like when you're watching this movie, you can feel him shaking his fist, um, at various institutions.
0: Mm -hmm. Like, this
2: movie is just a feature-length version of Jon Stewart shaking his fist at the American political system and at media. And it's like, okay, um, and then, you know... and it seems like at this point in his career, based on these interviews, he is he is kind of saying, like, down with the ship on all of it. Like, he is saying that to participate in the American political system at all is to be corrupted by it because it is corrupt. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, his hatred of cable news is well documented. Um, so I guess to me, this movie almost felt nihilistic in a way um, because it is a, quote, unquote, equal opportunity offender. Like, this mm-hmm. is not a movie that, and this is a movie that, I will give him this, it at least takes place in what is, what is realistically our actual political environment. It's not one of these political movies that won't name its parties, that takes right. place in some sort of fictional realm. Like, it takes place in, like, very much in present-day America. And, you know, Carell is very much supposed to be playing sort of, like, an establishment Democrat strategist. And there's even a brief cameo by Deborah Messing playing what is very meant, very clearly meant to be a Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, type role very early in the movie, mm-hmm. so, uh, but it feels like he is yeah. So it's equal opportunity offender, but you know that is to me a false equivalence. And this is where it gets into his sort of um, this lethally high minded thinking that he's that he's e- that he's evolved. I guess you could say into where he's just rejecting the entire thing. Um, so like this movie is not helpful. It's not constructive. In its in its satire and its criticism, it's just saying boo at the whole thing, um, and then just like laughing at the effort to try to work within the system to create any kind of change. It basically thinks that is hilarious, um, and should be and is just bamboozling and should be mocked and destroyed. Um, and that's not my current view. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> so I was not. It was not resonating with me personally. Uh, and even
1: even if that were were to be the message, it wasn't done in a way that was clever or um even respectful of funny also respectful of people either I feel like at the end of the day it still has this um like really reductive like romance of like small town folks aren't like don't hate each other and don't have party lines like that also is is you're now just like creating this, um, you know, wholesome American small town image, which is also not accurate. And and you're, you're (laughs) kind of creating this like bad guy, um, of the political system, which is also, um, not showing the intricacies of, of that, of that institution either. It, it's just, it just felt super lazy. It was gross. Um, there's even that, that scene at the end, we talk about the, the thing with the relationship being like Mm -hmm. half his age, there's like a weird, I didn't even understand the like last five minutes of like montage after montage that was insulting all around the board. And the whole thing was just in in poor taste. And I thought he was much more clever and much smarter and much funnier than that.
2: Yeah, it really is. It's sort of like Russian nesting dolls of condescension.
1: Yes. Uh,
2: Yes. (laughs) Like with each new one you open up, there's just more condescension. And um, and I feel like I mean it must be very embarrassing to be John Stewart making this movie, and to not realize how much more it says about you, than it does mm. about the subject. Yeah. So uh yeah, it's a real it's a massive letdown. I feel like John Stewart is like basically you know I'm reading all these interviews with him, and of course like I have nothing but fondness for him, for the role he played as sort of like moral conscience from all his years hosting Daily Show.
1: Sure, um, daddy of 9/11.
2: Daddy of 9-11. And uh, but I feel like he's getting to the point now where his his point of view on things is getting too curmudgeonly. Mm -hmm. And um, and, you know, and it's just not particularly helpful to have him be, you know, sort of trying to help shape the discourse through very broad, hacky political satire feature films like this.
1: Yeah, Uh, this is a big old send it back for me.
2: Same. Send it back.
1: Nemo, just jump on the train. I'll totally send it back. (laughs) Good. And I'm not even going to tell you where it's streaming or how much it costs or what it includes. It's also fucking gross. Steve Carell being gross is so gross. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: I hate it. It's just like, and by gross, I mean like unnecessarily like sexual insults. I don't know. It was just upsetting.
3: Do you think like my question for you about this is um, I did read a couple of reviews about it and listen to you guys talk. Do you think it's one of those things when you know you're like in the throes of being just really politically aware and p- politically astute and just kind of really having insights to, you know, really, really sophisticated understandings and, and 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 then sort of time goes on and maybe you aren't as connected to that world. And so it's kind of like trying to keep up with the younger people? Do you think like he's kind of, there's a part of it where he's lost the edge that we associated with him? So for him, this is a fresh take in in trying to be like, haha, look, this is a big joke to make you think about the bigger things. And I'm giving you this really off-putting scenario to make you stop and really think about this, but kind of has enough degrees of separation to where he didn't really realize the the mistake in his method.
1: Mm. Hmm. No. <laughs>
3: <Okay>.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Ma- I mean, maybe, but you'd have to be. He'd have to be so unplugged from where he was. Um. It feel like it un- undoes his basic understanding of like what funny is and right. who people are. Right. I I like I can't enough like think that the, the if you want to take like a nihilistic view of, of the systems and people citizen Ruth is the movie that this movie should be <laughs> is that everyone is terrible and has their own like ideas and self-interest in mind and like let's watch them go against each other and that was just so much more clever
2: yeah I mean that's a true equal opportunity skewering um, where you know it really does yeah if you want to make a movie that's all about how everyone's ultimately motivated by self-interest um, then that's the one, uh, that's the way to do it. And you're right, Rebecca, that this movie does ultimately, even with a twist, um, you know, and even though you know, it's ultimately showing that each point on this triangle, the Democrats, Republicans in this small town, each of them are ultimately working from their self-interest, but it does still uphold the small town citizens in this kind of um, glorified simplicity, rustic down-home American way um, where even though ultimately they're operating out of self-interest, it's still like, oh well, they're being cute about it, and look, they're all working together to to pull a big fast one on the system. Ha ha ha! I mean, I feel like the the thing this movie feels like to me, which is probably why I hate it so much, is that it feels like some sort of libertarian fantasy. Mm. <laughs> it feels like, and uh, and that's why I'm just like, John Stewart, have you gone libertarian? Because that is the mm. meanest thing I can say about anything is that it feels libertarian. and that's ultimately what this movie feels like to me um it just feels like some libertarian who thinks they're they get the privilege of just opting out of everything and then just like pointing and making fun of 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 the people working within the system to actually try to create change regardless of the fact that it is of course a very flawed system so
1: there's this this montage on like voting day and it shows like a group of like young white guys wearing like, um, black mandanas over their faces. And then it shows like a group of, um, black people wearing black lives matter t-shirts. It's like, is that how you think pe- like people just hang out in group? It was so silly. It was, I don't know. It didn't, it, it was just so cheap and it didn't, yeah. the twist ultimately doesn't make any sense. I don't get how that would possibly even work. Because it's not like they didn't pay for ads and things. (laughs) That money went places. Anyway, send it back minus.
2: Send it back. Send it back minus. This movie is trash. (laughs) Don't waste your $20 on it.
1: No, don't. All right, let's move on to the next movie, which is The Five Bloods. Four African-American vets battle the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide. Spike Lee streaming on Netflix. Um, do you know about the timeline of this movie when it started when when it was made was it supposed to come out now? Was it rushed? Was it?
2: Um, this was made for Netflix. So this okay. was not one of those things where, uh, yeah, this was like a Netflix production. So this was this, I believe, was on just a traditional timeline. So this was not one of those things where the theaters were going to have it or whatever.
1: OK, excellent. This movie is a ride, eh? I haven't seen a movie this... Uh, I haven't seen this much of an action movie in a long time. <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> I, 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 that. I, that was not the lead in a success What did you think? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: she's, she's wanting other people to start doing opinions first.
3: Yeah, I of course. <laughs> I will I will jump in um, and and listen. I I thought um, I thought visually it was stunning. It was a gorgeously shot movie, and I thought it was done in really interesting. I mean, I I liked it. I think it it has some problems, um, but I thought that it yeah I I I I, I overall like I loved watching it. Um, it kept my attention, and I think that you know you could not have picked a more opportune time for a lot of the movie's messaging to come out. Um, I thought, uh, you know, on, on, on a superficial, not superficial, but on a light level, I thought the performances were great, I, the acting, um, for the most part. Um, and, you know, the story was interesting, and I thought it did a wonderful job of kind of you know, really trying to remind the public about the contributions that African Americans have made towards like the building of this country and fighting for ideals of democracy and fighting for ideals of freedom. Um, I, you know, there's a lot I liked about it, but I guess I don't know. Is it is it time to flag? Like, what the, the first thing I noticed was just the lack of absence of strong uh, black women characters. Um, I know that this story was about. Um, five men, but in doing, you know, in, in the film, they they do a lot of flashbacks and remind you about figures in history who have contributed, and, and they were all men. And you know, um, African American women were nurses in World War One. They were nurses in World War Two. They were nurses in Vietnam. Um, they have they were intelligence agents in Vietnam. They and there's prehistory to the way that they've you know contributed. If we're focusing on on military and we want to focus on the ways that that people have died for freedom i mean you know you can go back to the to the 1700s so it was really sh- a shocking notice the absolute absence of that you know in the beginning and they're they're sh- showing a montage of some civil rights characters and they show Angela Davis it's great and there's you know a reference to an Aretha Franklin lyric in the movie but it was you know there weren't even at the end when, I, they, they, when they show sort of um, an image from a Black Lives Matter meeting, I mean, that movement was founded by three queer women. You couldn't have a woman running that meeting. Um, and I, I, know, I, know, I know that this movie was framed around the, the central male characters and there were female characters present. But it was just really noticeable, the lack of attention given to, to black women's contributions um, and their absence generally from the film, except in a few montage things. So, um, I, I didn't, I don't know if you guys picked up on that or noticed mm. that at all.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean, Spike Lee is famously disinterested in female characters. Yeah. Uh, like he's never been particularly focused on female characters in any of his movies, uh, which we know with the exception of like, she's got to have it right at the beginning. And then every now and then, um, you know, he'll have a supporting female character that pops the way that Angela Bassett playing Betty Shabazz popped in Malcolm X. Um, But by and large, women are an afterthought in his movies. And that's definitely one of their biggest failings. Um, Watching this movie, I found myself once again grappling with Spike Lee as a filmmaker. Um, Because very most of his movies just keep, I don't connect with particularly. And, and there's something about his approach that, I mean, obviously you never are confused about whether you're watching a Spike Lee movie or not. Um, you know, he has a style that has persevered and persisted um, in the last 35 years as a filmmaker and where his films always feel like a combination of just like a visual essay and a polemic, and just uh, a throw-everything-at-the-wall kind of extravaganza. And, you know, he's never been interested in subtlety or nuance, um, and he's not particularly interested in sort of naturalistic character development um, or dialogue. You know, he really, like, he's just, his mind is on in so many different places when he's making these movies, and the places his mind usually goes is not where my attention is, and so as a result, I usually feel very kind of alienated by his filmmaking style. And I was thinking watching this movie, it's remarkable that 35 years into his into his career, he still is making movies that bring to mind the word for me, amateurish. And, and I think that that is, you know, like that is by, that is obviously not the literal definition of the word because he is one of the longest working, most prolific filmmakers that we have. But they feel immature in the sense that they just don't feel like he is just impatient. He is just disinterested in polish. Um, Like he just, he makes exactly the movie that he wants to make. And I think he just doesn't really have anyone forcing him to soften the edges or to make things more cohesive. Um, And so as a result, all his movies just are sprawling and messy um and for some people that's what makes them great you know and it's certainly it's you know it's and i I love that he remains a voice you know in the in the cinematic universe but this movie i didn't even really understand what it was about until halfway in because it has so many tangents uh and it's it takes such a long time to get set up in this kind of core um premise you know once it's like oh okay so these you know these veterans are back because they want to go and get this gold that was left behind and to find the remains of their of their former leader. Um, it was it was very well acted, especially by Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo in this gives one of the best performances of the of the year. Uh, he is a great actor, and Spike Lee always gets amazing work from him. Uh, so he is fantastic in this. Um, but uh, so much of it, it just kind of felt. Like, I understand, uh, you know, the, why this movie feels timely, and, uh, and I appreciate those things about it. Um, but, you know, even using, um, you know, he, as always, makes these giant montages, to your point of, like, history and of uh, various newsreel footage, and some horrifying footage in this one, some horrifying footage in particular to contextualize what was going on in Vietnam. Um, the movie is certainly far, far, far from delicate, um, in its approach to any sort of racial sensitivity about the Vietnamese. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, to me, this movie was just kind of a mess. Uh, so, yeah.
3: One, one of the things, um, I was going to ask your opinion on is how do you think they, the movie handled the issue of America, American and Western, because, you know, the, the use of French characters was very deliberate um, about colonialism and about imperialism. And how do you think they handled that in, in the movie?
1: Oh, me, uh, you, he, you <laughs> were specifically asking for Jason's take on this.
2: You know, I, I mean, I feel like as always, like his, you know, he, his big picture, uh, vision of of this is 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 great. It's it's. I mean, obviously, like he's, you know, he is very thoughtful um, in his, uh, you know, in how he brings those dimensions of you know colonialism into the story, and uh, you know, and of you know the whole all the things with the French characters. Um, I wasn't necessarily super uh, following or plugged in on. I think whenever I'm watching Spike Lee movies, I'm always just kind of, like, just really turned off by, you know, his hatred for so many of his supporting characters. And in this case, it felt like it was more of that. Um, and he repeated, you know, uh, What's-His-Face from um, Black Klansman Paul, Paul Michael Hauser or whatever his name is, who was also in I, and, um And, yeah, so I don't know. Rebecca, thoughts?
1: So... Um for me that, that is the, the relationship or the introduction of these French characters as well as the introduction of um the woman.
2: We are hearing teacup kicking up a fuss just so you she know. She is kicking <laughs> up a fuss.
1: I'm sorry. Here's the thing. I have a cat. She's the, I'm working I'm working from home. We're working from home. I have a cat. She is on one right now. And <laughs> I beg the listeners and my co-hosts to be understanding of my family you, situation you at this that, time.
2: You want to just leave that door open or does Sol not want to hear you talking? No, the
1: problem is that she has this toy that she carries around and when she carries it, she like does that. <laughs> <laughs> and so That's she her, was her doing problem. that against my door and then, cause the toy was hidden in here and then she grabbed the toy, ran out there and now she's making a business of it. So I, we're just going to have to, <laughs> Plug power through. There's no solution. If I let you're, her in, it's gonna, gonna in be louder. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Um, All right,
2: fair
1: so enough. there are a couple of aspects of this movie that I I I don't know how to feel about. And one is the French characters, right? The French and, and Vietnam. It's it's a whole there's just I mean, it's a very how I feel is how people feel about the Vietnam War, right? There are layers of confusion and uh, there's messaging that you're told that isn't accurate, and there are so many sides. There are so many victims, um, which is uh, the woman who is the love interest or the old love interest of one of the the main characters. Uh, he goes back and he finds that um, their relationship had it. I don't want to ruin it. They had a, a different dynamic than you thought it did, and and but there also is this very powerful speech that she gives about what the, what the effects are that their relationship had on her life and, and her family's life, uh, which I felt was good. Um, but you know, there is, there are two, you know, major Vietnamese characters, one of which plays like a, uh, a, a prostitute. Um, do you need to tell the story of, of things that happened? I, th- I think that it's not, um, I don't think it is insensitive to include that story. I think that, that character has this speech that like justifies this presence in the movie the situation with the French character um I feel like I am not educated enough to make an assessment of the inclusion in terms of what that means to the dynamic you know it's like when you first figure out that um I don't know the Civil war wasn't about slavery or it wasn't about slaves uh, states rights and you're like okay, well, then let me rework everything. But with Vietnam, it seems even more complicated because there are so many different players in the, in the story. Um, and in, in this case, you see the the North Vietnamese kind of thought, the South, the women involved, and you this one woman story, and then uh, Black Americans and uh, everyone kind of being played against each other. So I don't have strong feelings about what the French characters mean or the distrust. Um, I did think it showed... Um, Jason already talked about uh, Delroy Lindo and his acting as one of probably the lead character uh, of the of this ensemble cast. Just um, another opportunity to highlight the person that he's become following the war, which is this like MAGA hat wearing, very uh, Trumpish, pr- pro American, uh, xenophobic, uh, tortured soul. Um, so that was like a good. Kind of way to see another part of how that manifests in him. Um, so those are my feelings about the French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Um, historical scholar here. <laughs> right, right. The I, historical scholar asks our opinion on. Go yeah. On.
3: What <laughs> we were know, your thoughts I on mean, it? I, you know, I thought that. I, I, you know, I'm kind of I have sort of split opinions about it and then I ultimately have to re- realize this is um, um, uh, uh, this is something that's delivered to a mass public so it's not going to it's there's going to be generalizations I thought that you know and especially the, it, like if we look at issues of intersectionality and one of the most important things we're grappling now is that it's, it's the struggles that's going to be uniting um, and and I think that you know it uh, whether it is race or ethnicity or class. Um, and, it, you know, in in a story may, predominantly about race, I thought that it touched on the issues. You know, you saw different opinions from different sides, from Vietnamese characters, and I thought that it, and, and you know, in and I thought that it addressed those, not, not super comprehensively, but it didn't, you know, it, it touched on the troublesome reasons that the war in Vietnam happened, and it, it, you felt different sympathies for different characters. Um, I, I don't know if the Vietnamese characters were portrayed outside of caricature, though. Um, yeah. Y- y- and that's kind of you know that that's kind of like did it did it succeed or did it not succeed in in, in its message? Um, and I I, I don't. You know, I'm thinking about the one scene when they're on the boat, um, kind of mm-hmm. going through the market, and the guy is trying to get uh, Paul's character to buy a chicken. And, you know, I was reading a review that was like, "That's that interaction, it would not have, it isn't a thing that, you know, most likely would have happened. And so I'm kind of, you know, when you were talking about, um, irresistible not to bring up that trauma but um, kind of like the kind of like the, the, the sort of this romanticized characterized notion of what a small town was supposed to be like I was wondering if at, in moments that wasn't applied to some of the Vietnamese characters and what their reactions would have been. Um, so I'm kind of on the fence of how how it you know it, I think it was appropriately critical um, but I don't know if all of the representation did that criticism justice.
1: And I think that like, if it's maybe to a degree, you know, if it's messy in terms of who's wrong and who's rude and, and who's bad in those dynamics, like it is, it is messy, right? It is messy. You have a group of people coming into your country and, and being terrible. They are not, then we, you know, the whole story of we have, black Americans being sent to war as cannon fodder. Yeah. Like it, the fact that those two characters have this interaction is, is gross and it is gross for all of them involved, but it yeah. doesn't mean that that is not like how, what happened. I think that the, the one French character who, you know, is pretty, Pretty self-aware, and her the 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 woman who makes is part of this um, landmine uh, yeah. nonprofit uh, has a very good another very good speech about being pretty self-aware about the privilege that she had and what she's trying to do. And then you have the you know ultimate you know, boss boss character who is a big white <laughs> Frenchman, which is like the unifying uh, bad guy in the story, right? Um, I think that uh, the one one thing I wanted to talk about was the can you still hear tick up yeah <laughs> she has a lot of thoughts about this movie um I I think I disagree with the idea of it being amateurish and and or that messy is amateurish I think that um there might be uh, a framework of refinement that is associated with like professionalism that um is a little narrow and that This in its in its chaos and it's uh, fun, also trying to almost like recreate this Rambo type movie for um, black Americans. And um, it it takes a lot of like weird and interesting choices. Like, I really like the fact that the the four main characters of, of four of the five bloods play themselves now and then they play themselves in Vietnam. Um, and then you see them, you know, I feel like it's a really powerful juxtaposition of them with the, um, uh, oh my God, what the hell's his name? Chad, Chadwick Boseman. Thank you. Know. Uh, character who's like this, the fifth blood who they go back and and have such this unhealthy and romanticized idea of him as a leader. And, and not that he wasn't, but it's clearly a, a, a huge part of all of their trauma and uh, especially for for paul, the the main character, um, yeah. and I, I thought that was a really great use of of this, you know, really obviously young person and and still using their same older characters. Um, I think it would I think they balance the different he balanced the four stories of of the characters and and what has happened to them and the people that they've become, um and how they they treat one each other, one another. Um but you have Paul, who's like gone off the deep end, clearly has very severe PTSD and and is incredibly aggressive with this Trump side. Then you have someone else who has become rich, but has his own struggles with money. Then you have someone else who who is just like um, the moral center of the group. You have the fun guy. And then you have um, Paul's son, David, who is from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. That was great to see. Um, I think it's messy, but I think that that mess is exciting and um, captivating and, um, I don't know it's like a if refinement is like a, a Van Gogh and this is like a Jackson Pollock um, of of energy and storytelling and the point isn't lost and uh, the passion is felt in through through the chaos of the acting in the story.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, no, and that's what I mean, because I'm Spike Lee. I mean, he's literally a film professor at NYU. Um, you know, so it's not like he doesn't understand film. It's not like he doesn't understand what he's doing. It's not like movies he puts out aren't exactly what he wants them to be. When I say the word amateurish comes to mind, I think what I mean is that almost almost every one of his films feels like it could be his first film in the sense that he just refused, like his language of film is that kind of first movie, indulgent, saying everything, every thought you have, just putting it all in there, trying everything. Like and in, in, in a way that's inspiring that he's, I believe he's in the sixties now. And like we said, he's 35 years into his film career. And he is still making every movie. Like it's his first movie. Like he has not lost his passion. He has not lost his intellectual curiosity. Uh, like he is still just as restless as a first time filmmaker, just throwing absolutely everything, um, it's kitchen sink at, at every subject matter. Um, And so in in my mind, yeah, the word that came up watching Defy Bloods was like amateurish. And I think what I meant by that is just he still has that first film feeling almost every time Um, with, with, with a few exceptions. Like you look at like 25th Hour, Inside Man. There have been a few over the years that have been much more sort of like polished and refined, to use your word, Rebecca. But this is not that. This is definitely keeping up with the trend of the movies he's been making for the last 10 years or so which are just these sprawling kind of visual essays that are just, like, have a lot of just various thoughts rattling around inside of them. And they're not, I'm not saying they're boring, um, but they just feel very, yeah, messy. Um, and this movie in particular just didn't do much for me. Hmm.
1: Huh. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. I... <laughs> huh.
3: Yeah, yeah, I. I... I... I've put a lot of value on this movie. Like, you know, again, I don't think it's a perfect movie, um, perfect film, but I, from an educational perspective, I really appreciate and think it's very important what the movie was trying to do in reminding people, A, who's the contributions that have been made um, to the, you know, building, you know, the U.S. and and democracy and freedoms. And even though they can be messy and there were contradictions and there were prejudices and they had really unfortunate, violent consequences, I think I think it captured that. And I think that it facilitates a really interesting awareness and conversation and a recognition that it's complex and messy. I mean, the heroes are antiheroes or I don't know if that's that's probably not the right word. Um. You know, the, the main characters are flawed, and they've, you know, they aren't without criticism, they aren't presented without criticism. I think, you know, I think the only probably, Storm um, and Norman is probably the only character that's kind of, you know, immortalized in a very positive way, um, but I really like what this movie is trying to achieve in a lot of ways. Um, and keeping in mind its audience is a mass audience, it's not, you know, like, a, it's not an, an upper division specialized for the panel of experts delivery. Um, I, it, I, I think even without the political climate we're in, I would definitely appreciate it and value it and, and enjoy it. Um, but there's, it, it's impossible, for me it was impossible to watch it in this moment and not be very grateful that it was made.
1: Yeah. I think there's, there's, um, it is a different angle if maybe you've been watching like the 13th or, um, other movies, you know, there's a lot of the streaming services have put up these uh, black Lives matter playlists. And this is an interesting fictional, uh, another view of a way that, um, black Americans have been exploited. Um, and I think that it, while he makes these very clear points, you know, it's just breakaway to the, the documentary, like, you know, uh, pop-up video of like, there's a history moment that's related to this. At the same time, I'm still like, oh wow, this is like an action movie I haven't seen in a long time. Going back to like yeah. my first statement of like, I want to see if they get the money out. And oh my God, that guy exploded. Uh, also warning, it's holographic. Um, yeah. but I was totally in like engrossed in that and I wanted to see what was going on in the in the very meta story of are they gonna get away with it? And yeah. and also being like, oh yeah, these men are now in their sixties and maybe early seventies. And yeah, this guy takes oxy for his knee problem. That's a whole other thing people to deal with. Or the fact that these guys like never had the counseling they need for the clear PTSD that they have. Like it's very topical. Yeah. and historical, and yet it still manages to throw in this, like, I don't want to call it's not a caper, but it's like, you know, action-adventure story that I'm like, what's going to happen next? Uh, yeah,
3: I think one of the things that can be very difficult to do is teach history lessons and make it interesting, um, but, you know, and also make really intense and broader social claims, but package it in a way that you're like, on the edge of your seat, and you really want to stay on board with it. And I think that uh, I think that's a credit to the years that he's been making films, and a credit to really understanding. To your point, Jason, that he's making the movie he wants to make. But I think I'm going to disagree with the amateurs because I think to be able to do that and do that well, and and, and engage the audience and and keep the audience engaged, it, it's an art form.
2: Right? Maybe. Yeah. I and I I was not engaged. So. Yeah. Yeah. Nor do I think that it really was much of a history lesson. Like it was, it reminded us that it reminded us of the perspective of Black soldiers who have repeatedly been conscripted to fight America's battles for it despite getting nothing in return, Uh, which is an important perspective to be reminded of. Um, But but I didn't feel like it added much more than that.
3: I guess where my counterpoint would be putting, names putting names and at times pictures and and not just saying as i did earlier well black women contributed you know but when to be able to put a name and a face it it suddenly takes you know this thing that people understand and makes it personal um and i like i learned from that you know i you mean
2: in like the documentary footage or
3: yeah, yeah. or we like, know it's a
2: fictional story
3: well, but in in the fictional story, though, but then they're talking about like the first uh, black soldier who died in the Revolutionary War. Like that's that's a fact. Um, so I think putting and uh, forgive me because I forgot the name and that makes me a horrible person. But being able to, I don't Christmas know if Attics? everyone knows that.
2: Right, Christmas addicts, right? Right.
3: So I. <laughs> so i trying don't...
1: to prove you were horrible. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, Thank I don't you. think everyone um, knows about the fact that yeah. this fat, this comment, is this like. Canon fodder situation existed especially when they like juxtapose it against when they there's this like really like interesting point where they're doing this like you know clear intelligence you know sabotage moment of playing these these message for american soldiers telling them about what's going right. on at home um which was i mean peak of weird and manipulative uh, intelligence moves, knowing what's going on at home and then also knowing that you're out here thousands of miles away. I don't know what distance is is. Millions? No, that's there aren't millions of miles. Thousands of miles away. <laughs> Dying and watching you your friends die for something that you have absolutely nothing invested in um, and then also being seen as, like, you know, monsters of war. I don't think that everybody maybe knows that. I mean, I feel like... Right.
2: Well, I didn't say everyone knows that. I just said that I think it just all it does is it reminds us of that perspective. And maybe for some people, they consider that perspective for the first time of what it has meant to be uh, a black soldier for the U.S. Um, and uh, and the particular uh, sort of cruel ironies of that of that particular situation. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is helpful. I just don't feel like it
3: did much with it.
1: <laughs> so this what are we giving this one?
2: For me, it's a consume.
3: Oh God, I'm new to this rating thing. I'm I'm gonna say binge. I'm gonna I'm gonna say binge it.
1: B- I'm giving it a binge it with a caveat that it is graphic. Yeah. Um, and it is streaming on Netflix, and it is rated R for strong violence, grisly images, and pervasive language. It is grisly. Let me yeah, say that grisly. one more time. Yeah. And now we get ask <laughs> the movie, which is why the reason Jen is here. Lucky grandma. Set in New York City's Chinatown An ornery, chain-smoking Chinese grandma goes all in at the casino Landing herself on the wrong side of luck And in the middle of a gang war I
3: mean, it's about time they brought my story to screen
1: (laughs) (laughs) I always see you getting on those buses Going to the casino In the middle of the afternoon
3: When my stories aren't on I need to fill my time (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs>
3: um, I just finished watching this uh, maybe an hour or two before we started taping. i I loved it. i It was just so <laughs> fun to watch. Um, it, the lead character I haven't seen I don't know the actress, um, and so I'm not really familiar with her work, but I mean, she's just captivating. She was brilliant. um, I within seconds just was like, I'm on board with your journey. I just want to know what happens. (laughs) (laughs) You are a badass and you're hilarious. Like I, I am with you on this, on this ride. Um, it was, it was fun. You know, I was thinking about it in, 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 in the movies that we saw and just like how new this felt in terms of the story it was telling and the people that were used to tell the story. Um, yeah, I don't, off the top of my head, have have very very deep analysis to get into that will probably kick in after the conversation starts. But I, <laughs> it was just fun. Um, I had a great time watching it. It was hilarious, and yeah, this is I a movie that
1: it. escalates quickly. Um,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> you have the story and, of it. A- and
3: ha- has some grisly has some grisly moments as well.
1: This one also <laughs> does have some grisly moments. Um, especially I think you know it starts off. Um, and maybe through the vehicle of seeing it through a, a grandmother, you're not going to expect it to get as grisly as it does. But you have a, a, a grandmother uh, who has a, a son and, and his family who lives in, in what seems like the suburbs, a uh, affluent family. She lives in a small apartment in Chinatown and she goes and goes to her doctor, which is a, a mix of. Um, you know, telling her what her luck is, what her lucky days are. And she goes up to the casino on what is supposed to be her lucky day and hits a big, that, first of all, it was very uncut gems too in that I just think that I have an aversion to gambling that it makes me so anxious to watch people gambling, even in a movie, even though it's a plot line that it's just, whew. I was feeling uncut gems level of anxiety watching her at the casino. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh yeah, I will say that I I recently found out about this subculture um, in New York of sort of elderly Chinese people taking buses to casinos from watching a storyline about it on um, Aquafina is Nora from Queens.
1: So, Jason, uh, this also because, happens in San Francisco. If you ever go to 16th and Mission, um, uh-huh. right in front of that Walgreens there, uh, there are huge buses that line up all the time. yeah. Like, It happens here as well. I've
2: seen those buses. I've seen those buses and I have never quite put together what they were doing or where they were going. Um, But yeah, there's an entire episode of Aquafina's from Queens where she, which takes place in New York, uh, where uh, she accompanies her grandmother to uh, on her bus full of, of retirees uh, to a casino for the day and kind of spends the whole episode sort of unpacking this, this very interesting subculture Um, so, uh, so that was fresh in mind whenever I went to watch this movie. So the lead actress, her name is, her name is Sai Chen, And she was actually a Bond girl in the Mm sixties. Uh, she has, she has had a wild life and, um, and she, but she has never had a lead role before. She was in like the Joy Luck Club. So she's been a working actress for 60 plus years. Um, but, uh, this is her first lead role and boy, oh boy what a performance and she's she's i believe she's 86 and uh, and this is just yeah a star is born at 86 it's gonna happen for you jen
1: Uh, (laughs) uh, i highly uh, recommend people look up photos of Chen (laughs) over the years
2: yeah Uh, it's remarkable a lot of people have compared this to having a sort of coen brothers ish vibe to it uh perhaps because it does sort of combine sort of like deadpan dark humor and these like kind of like dopey goon characters mm-hmm. um uh all kind of tripping over themselves trying to carry out poorly planned crimes and uh you know in it and so it has that while it also has this very kind of pointed humorous depiction of this character's life and her interactions with her sort of westernized adult children and their kids um and especially her tender relationship with her grandson it is uh it's such a it's such a great. This is not a story that we've seen told before. Um, it's directed by a woman named uh, Sassy Steely. Actually, the remaining four movies on this episode are all directed by women. So, yay! This, yay uh, and uh, I, this is her feature debut, and I think it's an incredible debut. It's it's funny, it's exciting, it's it's moving. Um, in in the final act, uh, it's really a, a knockout.
1: It's really yeah, well paced thought- as well because you have yeah. this like these different um levels that it goes through from she hires her bodyguard and and i mean she is just tough as nails all the way through and this is a woman that uh she tells the story of that she's just worked and worked and worked her entire life uh with her husband she's built the ability for her son to have this fabulous life now she's like you know, at retirement age, and and she needs to, like, work a little bit harder to get what she needs, and, and it's a little bit, depending on luck, and a little bit depending on grit, and she's just, like, hard as fuck, like, people come at her, um, violent thugs and goons come at her, and she's just stone cold, and then she has this, like, adorable relationship with her bodyguard, um, and then the story kicks it back up to being, like, you know, what actually has she gotten herself into? It's a little bit more complicated than, than you think it is
3: even though it's non sequitur from what you were saying, I was just picturing the scene with the grandson dancing with his friend and the videos they were making. And that so reminded me of my niece. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and it was just such a heartwarming movie, but yeah, it was great. I mean, it, she kind of is a sort of, you know, cantankerous character and it's, you know, towards the end when, you know, the, the consequences of her actions are completely inescapable. Uh, you, you start to really get the, not, I don't know if the humanity of her is the right word, but she, the, the shell starts to crack and you get you get to see the more internal thing. And it's not in a schmaltzy way. It's not in a cheesy, like, and this is how I learned to love. It was just more like when she really came, came through in a moment when she really needed to come through. And it was just wonderful. Like, it just, the storytelling yeah. was brilliant. Um, I I, this, I just think this movie was so wonderful.
2: Well, and it's also, one of the things I loved about it was it is so, so rare uh, to have a movie that is set in America that is almost entirely in a foreign language. And yeah. uh, so I think mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is even, you know, American movie, it's not the first American movie to be made, to be set in like a Chinatown setting of a city, but it is the first to actually have the fucking backbone to have a dialogue be in Mandarin for yeah. almost the entire time. So, so I yeah. really appreciated their, uh, I appreciated the integrity that it had in storytelling to not make it more, you know, quote unquote palatable for American audiences by making all of its characters speak a language that they wouldn't speak. I appreciated that detail.
1: And they also kind of do that dance with English when she talks to her son, because you see her son ha- mm-hmm. is, you know, there's a very American life. Um, that feels very out of touch with his mother's. And it's a it's a really stark difference to show like a a woman who has lived one lifestyle to provide a different lifestyle, and the the disconnect between the two is is so um so present.
2: I also appreciated that the subtitles in this movie were actually written in sentence case, unlike in title case, the way they were in Five Bloods, which drove me fucking nuts, where every single word was capitalized at the beginning. I, okay, so not to not circle back. That's probably a part of what kept me at arm's length the entire time. I was like, why are the subtitles in title case? And apparently that's how Spike Lee has been doing his social media as well as in title case. So it's something he's doing. I don't understand it personally. Uh, but so kudos to the subtitles for Lucky Grandma for being written sentence case. But, uh, but yeah, this this is just a real gem of a movie. Uh, even if we didn't have our own Lucky Nima joining us for this episode. Uh, we would have been excited to uh, to watch it and review it. And you know, representation matters for uh, for all age groups, isn't that right?
3: <laughs> I mean I did feel sane. <laughs>
1: good, good. <laughs> what are, what are you guys giving this one?
3: It's a binge
2: it for me.
1: Binge. Binge it. Wow, all right, lucky grandma, binge it all around. Uh, it's available on Amazon, Apple, Google. It's unrated, but we we are for language and for violence. All right, we're plowing through. Next movie is Shirley. A famous horror writer finds inspiration for her next book after she and her husband take in a young couple. All right, Shirley. <laughs> uh, this is okay. Um, this is a movie that is based on a short story about an author, so it is not necessarily. Um, a biography. There are definitely things that are true about the movie. The movie is about Shirley Jackson, a uh, horror um, mystery writer, teller of truths uh, from like the 40s to the 60s. Most famously, she wrote The Lottery. Um, and her husband what's named Stanley Hyman. And um, and this, this sort of give or take about a year where they uh, take in a young couple. He's supposed to be his... Uh, Professor Hyman's like as associate in in his studies of folklore and the wife has to end up kind of giving up her studies to help around the house because Shirley Jackson is um, having a real hard time um, taking care of things, taking care of herself, taking care of the house. Uh, she's having uh, a bout of what seems like depression, anxiety, and also trying to get through a book. so this is a like kind of a loosely based on reality meta horror story within horror stories and by ho- it's like light horror right it's like it's not like ghosts and monsters it's like the horror that's within all of us
2: psychological horror
1: there we go
2: yeah it's it's a uh, yeah and elizabeth moss uh plays shirley jackson and is the uh star of the show uh jen i had mentioned that um when you were trying to figure out which ones you need to watch this one was you know about the world of academia so that uh you might have some some insights as that's currently the world you dwell in. Uh, how <laughs> well, do you feel I, about the depiction of the academic world in this movie?
3: I mean, I should preface this by saying, um, as I told you guys earlier, I watched this movie um, at two in the morning. Um, <laughs> that's right. So to watch a movie that uh, blends reality and fiction and leaves you wondering which is which at moments in, in Twilight Hours was perhaps not my wisest decision. Um, I mean... I, in terms of academia, that is that is n- not necessarily a level I would say that I, where they were at that I uh, feel I can speak to. But one of the things I I did wonder about was so the way that uh, the young couple is invited to the house and kind of way that both the uh, Shirley Jackson and Stanley kind of toy with them. Um, for mm-hmm. their own benefit. And it leaves you wondering, is this for their combination for their own professional benefit? Is this just what they do for people? But then also, is it for creative benefit so that they can get inspiration or do character development or right. get what they need? Um, and I found the unanswered questions about that to be very, very interesting. But it, in terms of how it kind of relates to academia, it just reminded me of how some faculty and institutions just blindly exploit graduate students and undergraduate students, but especially graduate students, um, exploit the unacknowledged and unwaged labor and the toll that it puts on. And it's happened so blindly. And it's this thing that you should be grateful for because you can gain experience for it, but it's purely uh, exploitative. Um, And that, when I was watching it, was wondering if that I, I know the story, it, it, the broader story was about any th- other things, but that to me was sort of a takeaway of how that parallels academic life was just the entitlement that some faculty have to exploit others to meet their, to meet their, their gains. So that would be the, the kind of one parallel um, that I, you know, picked up on. And so you think that's accurate? Not so much in the way that it was portrayed, but cons- in 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 the in feeling entitled to to use students for for personal broader gains, yes, um, in the way it was depicted in the movie. Um, I haven't heard of that myself, but <laughs> i mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that, you know I wouldn't be surprised if that if that happened because, you know you you get you take people get people in positions of power that you think can be helpful or you look up to and so you are willing to work for them um because you think uh it could lead to professional gain as with the husband of the young couple or it's inspiring or you're in by that and people in positions of power will take advantage of that and that general theme is not specific to academia but is absolutely prevalent in academia um and sort of the liberties that that they take, you know, like Stanley's, you know, not um, stopping his philandering ways from flirting with, you know, his protege's wife um, and being very inappropriate in that regard, and and sort of this entitlement to be able to do that, things like that. I I I, I, I will say I did uh, look up a picture of Shirley Jackson and Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> they the it is uncanny how they got her to. <laughs>
0: to really
3: um look up a picture I was like oh they nailed that they they nailed (laughs) that the whole time I was watching it I was thinking of um I think it was when you were reviewing the invisible man and you were talking about how you could just watch a movie of Elizabeth Moth's face acting and yeah yeah, I I I need no more selling on that (laughs) it is it is poetry it is amazing
1: there yeah, was one moment where hard. was the moment that was very similar to an invisible man is she is like is she trapped somewhere she, oh it's when she tries to leave the house uh because and that is basically shirley jackson was kind of a known recluse and there's this point where she's like trying to leave the house and is really struggling with it and that was very invisible man um where she's also i was like i'm having a deja vu moment and it is, oh it's invisible man there it is <laughs> um and
0: yeah.
1: the we want to note that Stanley is played by Michael Stilberg um who is yeah. now I think being typecast as um, Professor Aloof um learned man. <laughs> <laughs> he has the beard for it.
2: He was a natural. He was a natural. Yeah. You're Did just you? like you're just like, "Oh, is that is that one of my professors from college who uh, he's acting now? How how exciting." <laughs> Very <laughs> believable and authentic.
1: Very call me by your name
2: um (laughs) yes that's right
1: i i mean i think that like that does your point does play to the to the power dynamics of the movie and um the infrastructure by which kind of everyone's madness and misery is built right like it's built in the academic system to exploit uh those within it and then in as that naturally explodes to to people in a lower um, with, with less voice than that. So it's the women it's Shirley Jackson uh, not being able to uh, you know, write without her husband having to see it without being constantly uh, criticized by him um, with, with the wife not having an ability to do anything about the fact that her husband is now also joined this, these ranks of like philandering husbands. It's just the system of, Inequality and exploitation that drives people insane, and um, I mean I've, I've only read The Lottery and I think The House on haunted Hill, um, but it's you know The Lottery is very much about um, psychological horror. It's a horror of society and um, what they're forced to live in because of these um, nightmares that they live in real life.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I think that I at the beginning of this movie, as we're watching this young couple. Played by Logan Lerman and Odessa Young, as we're watching them, you know, take the train into Bennington, um, and we're watching sort of like this this hellish introduction they have to the couple. You know, with the whole thing starts to feel like it's going to be Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? and uh, and I was like very on board for that. <laughs> um, but um, so this filmmaker is named Josephine Decker um and this is her fourth feature her last one was her first one anyone had heard of it was called madeline's madeline and uh it's, it's very experimental she's she's a, a very experimental filmmaker um you know it's sort of like she makes marangeli look like michael bay um and um <laughs> and and uh and, uh, and was in madeline's madeline um and you won't believe this but they're friends um and uh, and I think that you know Madeline's Madeline I couldn't finish, and um, and watching this movie, which on paper I should love, um, I just have a really hard time with this director's kind of cinematic language. Like, I feel like there's you know it's I guess the nice way of putting it is dreamlike. She tells her stories in a dreamlike way, um, where like Jen was saying, you know, like you're not always sure like what's real and what isn't. Although you don't, when things, you don't know whose subjective point of view you're looking at things from. Um, and uh, there's really no connective tissue uh, from one scene to the next. Th- things just smash into each other. And, um, and I, would just, I was just very alienated watching this movie. I had a very hard time um, following it emotionally because it didn't feel like it had really much of a, much of a spine pulling it all together. Um, So I was very much in awe of Elizabeth Moss' performance the entire time, as always. But aside from that, and and, and Michael Stolberg's naturally um, appealing academia. But aside from that, I, I did not find much to connect with or root myself in in this movie.
3: Yeah, I found watching it kind of you know trying to grapple with okay like what exactly is this movie about like I know it's supposed to be kind of this idea of what this woman's world would have been like but is this a movie about you know the frustrations of women and and the need you know the the, because at first your introduction to Stanley it's like oh is he like the male savior who is saving her from herself or is this more like you know, like the disease without a name that corrupts is corrupting women from the inside within this with within this period and is that both for uh, I believe the character's name was Rose as well as um Shirley. And then it's or or, or you know and then it, I think, you know, it's it's a mix of all of these things, but it did get, you know, and then you start to see this sort of more darker side of Stanley. So you're like, okay, well he's obviously not this like a Wolf Savior character. So it it gets it it was it was I agree it was very difficult to follow I in part liked how at times I didn't know whose perspective who or whose madness was overtaking um between you know the two primary woman characters you you know you it was as compelling as it was confusing and I think that that was sort of the point I don't think it mattered mm-hmm. whose it was I think that the the mad, you know I think that you know uh, Shirley's quote you know when they're you know, they're, they're talking about, like, ways that they can make, you know, the young husband destroy himself and then and talking about the ways that they can kind of mess with Rose, and she's just like, well, they'll go mad. She'll go mad. They all do. And it's kind of this sad, sadistic way, but then also, like, this is kind of what happens. I mean, it wasn't compassionate, but it was it was as much a reflection as it was an action to put on to someone else, you know what I mean, it, as, as an intention, um, which... Yeah, I mean it's interesting, but then it's confusing, confusing at the same time. So it's it's much more of, a, of of a movie that you might get cerebrally engaged with. But I agree, I didn't really have any emotional connection to any consistent consistent emotional reaction to the characters.
1: I think the the thing that that is supposed to tie the movie together is the thing that is also. The least tangible, which is that during this this the timeline of this movie, Shirley is writing another story. And the story is based on the disappearance of a young girl in town. And as she's trying to write it, you're watching a woman um, who's having issues uh, with her own emotions and her own life. And also this introduction of this new family into her house. And also she's trying to kind of live and embody like what happened to this woman and so much of what's happening is all kind of like coming to the surface and trying to tell this story and so it blends a lot between this like imaginary woman that she's picturing and trying to write and try to embody her own experience Rose's experience which is basically Shirley's but like 30 years earlier so you're watching that sort of like shadow happen and then there's this like um you know shadow of a of a figure that has that has died and I think that it is confusing if you're like, wait, who is that? And who's wearing that coat? And this is kind of a blur. And, and are you dreaming or are you not? But I think if you're looking at it around the perspective of like, I don't know, it's felt very like, um, was it the yellow wallpaper? Or um, yeah. It, yeah. A, 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 you know, the hours, like if it's a story about like misogyny and um, female hysteria and like women not being allowed to be eccentric artists and uh, living within the confines of either being like not working enough, or if you're working, you're not like giving that credit to your husband. I think it makes sense. Um, so I will give it a binge it. Yeah. I thought, I mean, there was,
3: there was one quote, which I thought really underlined, like if, if the, if the movie had to be wrapped up in, 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 in an exchange, when the husband is getting frustrated with her and he's, jealous that she's sharing her work more with Rose than with him and he's talking about like what she's basing the book around which is the disappearance of this woman and he's, he says you know you don't even know her and she says you know basically she's a woman that's kind of been erased. she's a woman that you know w- was sort of kind of I don't remember she she said the kind of like you know like ruined or like overtaken by power people in academia but like Basically, like this is a woman on college on a college campus who disappeared and was erased. Like she is every woman. I know her. And I felt like that was like that was kind of like those moments in David Lynch movies where he gives you one line and you're like, Ah, okay. Got Mm. it. I'm with you. And to me, like that was like, okay, this is like this is like the main the main thing. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean If I was rating,
2: you know, these movies based on just their politics and their morals, then that would be a different thing than rating them on their craft and how they are as movies. Um, So, like, in terms of this, you know, the way that this movie outlines the things that, Rebecca, that you were talking about. Yeah, that's all fantastic. But as a movie, it was very unpleasant. So, for me, this is a consume.
3: Yeah, I'm going to go with a consume. I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I... I enjoyed the I enjoyed being confused by it, but um, I also kind of enjoyed it more after watching it than during watching it. So I would I would give it maybe a consume plus.
2: it mm-hmm. give you <laughs> weird dreams.
3: You know, I think I fell asleep immediately afterwards. Deep deep sleep
1: slumber. Yeah, I'm giving it a, a binge it. Uh, not just based on politics, Jason, uh, but based on mm-hmm. the fact that I thought that the the acting was stellar. I mean, you have Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stillman playing this couple and they are just so it is very like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's like yeah. petty and it's uh, also kind of endearing and it's kind of gross and you're scared the whole time. Um, and you know my bias I, I would love i love a movie about like academia in the, in the 50s and 60s i, I think that's a, a really <laughs> um, new england sweet time to look at um and i really liked the rose's character and and her and her husband's character are not like carbon copies of them but you can see the system turn them into each other and i liked watching that happen there was some like antagonism there and i found that exciting um so i think as a as a movie and as a political statement uh, i'm giving it a it. Shirley is streaming on Hulu and rated R. Oh, it is? I bought it. Hmm. (laughs) It's also for Bridges (laughs) on the Others. Uh, Sexual content, nudity, language, and brief, disturbing images. Also, in honor of Pride Day, there is some lesbian subtext to it. So, full disclosure. Our next movie (laughs) is Miss Juneteenth. A former beauty queen and single mom prepares her rebellious teenage daughter for the Miss Juneteenth pageant.
2: Straight to the point. Uh, so this is the um, the feature debut of a, of a director named uh, Channing Godfrey Peoples. And uh, in watching in it stars uh, Nicole Bahari, uh, who is best known uh, for playing the lead on that show Sleepy Hollow. She was also in Shame with Michael Fassbender. And uh, this movie... I'll just, I'll just come out and say this is my pick of the month. Um, I loved it. I loved it so much. I felt like it was telling a story about black life in America that I haven't seen before. Uh, because uh, there are so few movies about black life in America that sort of take place in, um, in suburbs. Uh, you know, like where this movie, we're in sort of a, uh, a working class suburb of Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and we're watching, you know, this entirely black community, uh, sort of just preparing for this annual celebration of Juneteenth. And, uh, and we're watching the, the filmmaker's style, it reminded me sort of like of, of Linklater in a way. Like it was very, it was just very naturalistic, very slice of life. It feels very well observed. It takes place in the town where this filmmaker grew up. So this is very much uh, a very personal film for her. You know, she grew up celebrating Juneteenth in her community every year. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is a story that in, you know, it, it's very simple and it's very straightforward, but I think it also has a lot of sort of great significance, um, in terms of sort of a dream deferred. Like, I think we're invited to look at the story of Juneteenth, to look at the significance of Juneteenth and what it represents in terms of the freedom, um, that was announced, but then looking at what's followed since then and seeing all the ways that America has failed, uh, black people after this freedom. And then we also see the story of this woman, uh, Turquoise. And we see that, you know, she had this big moment where she was crowned this Juneteenth. And then we see that her dream has sort of been deferred since then, um, the ways that life has let her down. And, um, and that she is now just sort of projecting all of that in that classic parental way onto her daughter um, for, to try to force her daughter to realize the dream that she feels like she didn't get to realize herself. It's 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 just beautiful. It's just a beautiful film. Um, Nicole Beharie for this, I really will be thinking about for best actress at the end of the year. I think it's such a it's such a beautiful, nuanced, um, insightful, layered performance. Um, we have Kendrick Sampson from Insecure, uh, looking very good. Uh, the actress playing her daughter. This is her debut performance. I thought she was fantastic. She's a total natural. Um, I love the visual eye. I loved like. Uh, it was just beautiful. It was really, really beautiful. I, I so enjoyed the opportunity to to look at this piece of life that I hadn't seen before um, through this director's eye.
3: Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I thought that it, similar to, to what you were saying, is we rarely get this insight into Black life in America and, and, it, and, and the family way and the ways that the community... The sort of the standards by which the community judges each other and each other's successes, and what being successful looks like, and how how that's supposed to manifest, and how complicated that is within within the history of, of, of black Black history in America and Black experience in America. And I think it dealt with it. Just it, it had a subtlety, but it was not. If if you can be as subtle and clear at the same time, it was it was subtle precision maybe for lack of better better phrasing um Mm -hmm. uh, yeah and the acting was phenomenal and the 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 actress who played the daughter her she was uh, similar her so many emotions bottled up in her all the time and it was so subtle but it was so complex and so comprehensive and there was no mystery to what she was feeling and how she was feeling. And I loved the relation, I loved the mother daughter relationship. I mean, it was so loving and it was fraught, but they loved each other. And that was never a mystery. Um, Visually it was, it was fantastic. And I just, it was really, really engaging. Um, Rebecca,
1: what did you? I think that I really enjoyed the relatability of the mother's insistence on like closing a loop within her own life and also seeing a singular path to escape and success that I think often parents do. Um, Either it's college or it's, you know, not dating too early or it's like, it's trying to protect your kids against the experiences that you've lived. And especially the less opportunities that you have available, the more, um, golden the one path that you can identify seems and the complete singular focus and narrow-mindedness and inability to see your children as people with their own interests and and really focus on that. And the attention is nothing but good, but everyone around her can see it except for her. And it's tough to watch. I think it's it's tough to especially in, in this situation around this pageant, this pageant, you know, afford would afford her daughter a scholarship to college. And, um she had won Miss Juneteenth herself. So there's that which which watching the movie to me, only played against her daughter's chances of winning. It's also it's a contest. So you would need to be so um, so special to know that you win a contest amongst these other people, but to like put all of your eggs into this basket in this desperation, um, was it just felt very relatable. and in that i I felt it was it was sweet. And and difficult. Um, I think I really like the fact that ultimately it it ties back to Juneteenth and the and and a black experience in America where so much of it becomes about outside of that singular focus. The the other characters realize the importance of owning something and. And what that what that means? So it's whether it's her boss owning the bar, or um, her friend owning his his business, or the her ex husband husband owning his own like mechanic shop. Like that that really is the thing that that's that solidifies your existence here in America as as a a whole person that like can't have things taken away from you, and how sad it is to see that you know in in all this time since Juneteenth, that that is available to so few of the people in her community. And it is, uh, it really is a thing that changes your existence, whether or not you are a power player in your own life, or whether you're at the whim of of other things. So I I will say it it wasn't the black story uh, in America that felt very unique, because I felt like it reminded me a lot of support the girls. Um,
2: I thought about that movie, too.
1: Uh, in in showing and it it reminds me a lot of I don't know if it was like this where you're from in 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 Pennsylvania Jason but to me it was like a very Cleveland like experience of like you know uh, middle-class families uh, in you know albeit segregated neighborhoods generally Um, but you don't see it very often here in San Francisco Um, I was watching a comedian stand-up recently um and she was talking about like where she was in LA and and she was in her bit like ran into another black person in Target and she was like where are the rest of us and she was like you have to go to Compton or Inglewood and she was like I'm second generation suburbs where is that and and you don't see that here in San Francisco very often you see it in Oakland thankfully but um it it had a very uh realistic feel I think to like a Cleveland or Detroit or, and also a very uniquely Texas experience where people are riding around on horses all the time as like a means of (laughs) primary transportation.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, it reminded me of support the girls just in this, in the sense that this was also a movie with a black female protagonist that took place in Texas. Um, you know, but aside from that, you know, that movie was of course entirely sort of a workplace, uh, drama that had a, 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 ensemble cast of, 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 different races. Uh, whereas this was really, truly like, I think if that movie had been just entirely about Regina Hall's character and it was like, not just her work, but her main at home, her, you know, and we, we see more of her life in that than just work, but that was just such a brilliant ensemble movie. Um, and, uh, in, in this, we really do see that kind of, to your point, this sort of like segregated Texas black neighborhood. Um, and that's what we focus on purely and solely from beginning to end. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I loved, I love those nuances. And yes, it's very, very true that San Francisco famously is very, very, uh, racially imbalanced and has historically been very, very low, uh, on, on black population, which was one of the subjects of the last black man in San Francisco to go back to a movie that was brought up earlier.
0: hmm
2: <laughs> Mima. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I mean, I... I don't really have much else to contribute to. I think, like, covered kind of the basis. I mean, yeah, I just thought it was um, really wonderful to see, A, just how many times there were just women on screen and just how many times there were just black women on screen. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, if we think about all the movies that we've seen, how often does that happen? Um, and not, I don't mean that, like, in a tokenizing way. It was just Wonderful to see. It was really, really re- refreshing. Um, yeah, I mean, I so is this? Did you say it was the the writer or the director's first film? Or,
2: hmm yeah, yeah, first yeah. film. Yeah, incredibly I mean,
3: naturalistic. Yeah.
2: yeah,
1: very
2: naturalistic. What a debut! Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, I already said it's my pick of the month. So it's a binge it for me. Just yeah, because, because it's politically
1: it. good, Jason, doesn't mean. <laughs>
2: If you would like to talk about that comment, we can talk about
1: it. Uh, I feel like we already addressed it. We already addressed it. If if we didn't address it clearly, then I'll just edit the show to make it very clear. (laughs) I'll cut and paste around.
2: It really was just that when you led up to calling it a binge for Shirley, the things that you said going directly into that were not about the movie. They were about misogyny and academia and so it sounded like you were you were just talking about the subject matter and how important it is to talk about it and then you said it's a binge and it kind of came out of the blue uh so that was why i responded the way that i did
1: fair enough that said (laughs) this is also a binge for me
2: (laughs) and uh jen you said binge as well
1: oh i did yeah wow we have three binges
2: our second triple binge
1: (laughs) um And and I feel like there's a, there's a through line with these two, right? With Lucky Grandma and Miss Jutine, it's women very, in a very desperate situation and seeing uh, a situation of chance as being um, something that changes their life and their family entirely. And um, that's, you know, it all comes back to Shirley's testament about misogyny. So uh, let's move on to the last movie. (laughs) this week uh, month uh, which is Baby Teeth Mila, a seriously ill teenager, falls in love with a drug dealer, Moses, her parents worst nightmare
2: so uh, you Rebecca watched this just before we were getting ready to start taping and I was nervous texting you and I was because I knew probably what was happening at that point in the movie, uh, <laughs> and I wanted to give you uh, space because I thank I knew you, that, uh, Jen, Jen. Jen, I know that you uh, you were messaging me about uh, that it had a bit of a impact on you emotionally as well.
3: Yes, uh, there are a few. Uh, you could say tug at the heartstrings or completely ripped it out and sort of. Punted it across the town a few times. Um, <laughs> in in a you know in, in a very moving way. Um, but yes, the, the, the film had
1: impact. Yeah, I it was that, that text message came. <laughs> and it was very welcome. Uh, I had to clean myself up <laughs> okay. a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, glad 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 to give you a little bit more space <laughs> to uh to uh to react to the movie before throwing you onto this call. Um. This movie to me is sort of like, you know, it's like all those John Green adaptations like Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns, except not terrible.
1: Yes, uh, that's it. This is the one. All, throw all those out. This is the one.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like no need to go back to Mean Earl and the Dying Girl. Mm-mm. No need to, you know, go back to any of those movies. Like this is this is the movie to watch. Um You know, if you are in the if you are in the market for a really emotionally moving, powerful story about a terminally ill teenager, of which there are many, many movies like that for some reason. Um, So clearly, there's an audience for it. um, But this is this is the best one you can watch.
3: Yeah, going into it, I didn't really. I just clicked Brent and watched it. I didn't read the description, so I didn't know that that was the premise at first. So surprise. Yeah, it kind of. Took me a bit to be like, oh, she's sick. Okay.
1: <laughs> All right, because that doesn't that not immediately um, made no. made the knowledge right. is made available. So yeah, I'm interested to hear your take because I had read the premise. I I knew vaguely what it was about, um, but I I imagine it would be a harder hit not knowing. It.
3: Was a slightly harder hit, but it made the movie make so much more sense to me um, in that one thing I really liked is one thing I I struggled with and then immediately appreciated um, was I didn't really get a sense of who she was prior to this movie. Um, Not prior to this movie, prior to the point where we meet her. You know, there's no backstories of characters given really there's maybe some allusion to the mom and 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 something when she was younger but it it was just the lack of backstory just made you only focus on the characters in that moment which really in the frame that that, that we experienced them in, and and that really reiterated that the only thing that mattered was that time because of the illness and you know it, it, and it just was only about that moment and who people could be or who they could become and what they wanted to make of that time. And once once that hit home, it was like, got it, got it completely. Um, Yeah, I thought the actress who played Mila was amazing. She was phenomenal. Um, what she brought to the... And it kind of, because sort of at first I'm like, okay she meets Moses at a train station and that's kind of how the movie opens and I kind of like I don't get it I don't get why that why this guy he's like an obvious mess um what's the appeal and you kind of realize like what he just represents like this wild living and then just this sort of different life that can bring that it's just sort of loose and it's free and and so you, you you see what that means to her and wh- and why that why she's attracted to that, um, the parents, you know your introduction to the parents is so awkward and hilarious. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to eat a sandwich ever again, <laughs> and not be mildly disgusted by the process. <laughs> um, but. You guys are much better at the plot analysis of the movie before the the conversation kicks in. So does one of you want to jump in and kind of...
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you not on video, just watching Jen flail her arms around um, looking for a lifeline (laughs) was a momentary pleasure for Jason and myself. Um, so we have uh, Mila, who um, you now know is terminally ill, and she meets this fellow Moses on the train, and he is—he uh, looks like he's part of uh, De Antwood, right? He's, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, street street kid, um, and and he does initially show her some kind you know, this kindness and 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 sweetness uh, that she's what. 15 turning 16 I think in this movie um and they they start to form a bond. Uh, her dad is a psychologist. Her mother uh, was a classical pianist. And it's kind of... I think the movie is about half of the way into the end of her normal teenage life where she still kind of goes to school and is just starting chemotherapy. And then the last half of the movie is, is part of where she doesn't really go to school anymore and she just kind of spends time at home with her family. Um, and, you know, I think the... We watch all of these people in her life struggle with being themselves and reacting to the situation. Um, one really interesting part of this movie is that it it every character has a relationship with drugs in one way or another. So Moses' character is uh, a drug addict um, on the street. So I'm thinking like heroin. Um, Mila is in chemotherapy. The Mother has a, a you know upper downer pill situation, um, and the Father does some brief recreational morphine. and we and we see that kind of, I don't know, it's a dynamic amount judgment and necessity and um and it comes up it comes up in conversation at some point when you start to see uh her parents who initially think he is a Moses is a a nightmare and a problem and a thief and needs to get out and he's also 23 which is a, a big part of the story he's 23 she's 16 turning 17 um and the last thing they think she is in the space for right now is some kind of like wild relationship with a 23-year-old drug addict. But then the those walls of what is, how she should be spending her time change because of what her time is.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a movie that's almost difficult to describe without making it sound like, sort of like maudlin, like all those movies, all those bad movies, because, you know, it's just about her having... A first love and just hungrily devouring it for every every ounce that it's worth for the time that she has left, even though she does her first love like many is a bad boy who <laughs> is not who who is problematic and who is a parent's worst nightmare. Um, but she she yeah, and the, the performance of Eliza Scanlon here um, more than making up for her sort of non performance as Beth in the last Little Women movie. Uh, mm. another, another terminally ill character,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and, uh, and closer to her breakthrough performance in Sharp Objects, uh, where she, uh, was absolutely brilliant. She, this is a movie that really gets into those dark, darker corners of these experiences. Like this is a very emotionally fearless movie that, that goes, um, yeah, just deep into the psychology of all of its characters. Um, it's it's by no means a feel-good movie, um, but it, it's carried along by just the boldness of its storytelling, um, just the boldness of its characterizations and dialogue and the ways just the, the hairpin shifts that each of these characters take as they are all sort of um, hurling toward this, this inevitable conclusion. Um, and, and the performances are great across the board. Ben Mendelsohn as her dad, um is is magnificent and in particular so essie davis is the actress who plays her mother and she is best known as playing the mom from the baba duke
0: Mm -hmm. uh, which
2: is one of the great which is one of the best performances in any movie i've ever seen and now is best known for being part of that meme where she's yelling at her kid in the back seat um <laughs> which which i've seen most recently used um about the mask situation when huh. she and the words on her image are just like why can't you just wear a mask and the boy's words while he's screaming are screams in american freedom <laughs> um so nice uh but uh but yeah she she in particular I think s.d davis has a scene that she has to play at the end of this movie that i can't even imagine coming to as an actor knowing where it begins and where it ends, I can't, I can't imagine. Um, and she brings just absolute gut-wrenching honesty and truth to every moment. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's yeah, this is really just, it's an incredible, it's, it's unexpected, it catches you off guard. Um, it's directed by Shannon Murphy who directed some episodes of Killing Eve. Um, mm. And it brings some of that, it, you can feel some of the visual flair of, uh, of Killing Eve in sort of the aesthetics of this movie. Some some critics felt like the aesthetics undermined it a little bit. What, 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 what oh, did you think? It's just no, titles on screen and everything.
1: There is this scene in this movie when she goes to the dance. She goes to a party with Moses, and uh, she dances by herself. And she meets this character, and it is I. I need to watch it again. Um, I. It is so beautiful. The, the music is great in the movie. Yeah. It's beautiful. I didn't know there were so many beautiful, weird birds in Australia. Uh, the house that they live in, like, to me, puts the uh, the parasite house to shame. Uh, oh. <laughs> everything in, in this movie is, is gorgeous. And this one particular dance scene is so powerful, so trippy and so powerful. I, I think it, it worked completely in its favor.
3: Yeah. I, th- I, I thought, you know, watching it, it... I enjoyed the contrast of how bright the colors were. Um, I thought that was really smart and really clever. Um, uh, yeah, and just sort of the, the dynamics between what's going on externally and what's going on internally um, and the tensions between the two environments. Um, I thought was really, really brilliant. I was, I mean, it, I, it, it was... Slightly problematic, the 23 and she's 15 going 16 at first. It's kind of like that's not the healthiest age <laughs> difference. And it, it did kind of, you know, at first I wasn't sold on Moses's interest in her past, what he could get from her. But I thought I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed how the story arc developed. Um, um, I was moderately confused about the neighbor. Like, I thought she was funny, comic relief, and, like, I got, I got the distraction she served, um, uh, f- for the father at, at a certain point, um, and then sort of her Henry's being- Henry's a dog's poor-
2: name. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny.
3: <laughs> Henry, but that's a dog's name. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, she was the comic relief of the, of the movie. Um, and kind of then just seamlessly being kind of welcome into the family life. It was kind of like, okay, that happened. Um, but um, yeah, I think the way that they captured how people deal with those high emotional dark situations and the conversations that they have, you know, the conversations between the parents At certain times, I mean, they were painful and hard to listen to, but so honest and so real. And I absolutely in every way felt that like they just so brought me into their experience and how they were dealing with that. And the subtle nuances and expressions when they could understand different levels of severity just hit. It was so powerful. You know, it didn't you weren't force fed anything you weren't nothing was manufactured it there was no manufacturing of emotion in this it just was so raw um I I not knowing what I signed up for was just like mm-hmm. oh my god <laughs> yeah. I mean it yeah and it and it's 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 I think it's a gift to make a film you know it it wasn't uncomfortable to watch. It wasn't hard to watch. It was just hard to witness that. Does that make sense? You know mm. what I mean?
1: Like, right. That that explains the, the lack of like a manufacturer, right? When you say, when we throw back to the old 30 rock line of hard to watch, that means like someone mm. has manufactured something to emotionally manipulate you into making it hard to watch hard to witness, I think is a really good way to say what it means to watch a difficult mm. story and people struggle with actual issues in, in a way that, isn't being exploited by the director. Um, and yeah, hard to witness. I I think this movie expects or tries to show the best in people, believes in the best in people, while yeah. also not shying away from the individual struggles that they all have. Yeah. Whether it be with yeah. addiction or loss or parenting or um, having death on the horizon. it, It goes back and forth between people making selfish and foolish decisions and then people rectifying and like stepping up for the moment and then kind of falling back and then going back and forth between those two in a way that is ultimately why it's such an emotional punch. because you are along for the ride. You don't know what you would do and and you can identify with the the struggle that these people are going through.
2: Yes. Um, And on the subject of the age, I just looked up for Australia the age of consent is 16 Uh, so it's, so I think her, her birthday is certainly a pivotal point in that, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yes, the birds in Australia are crazy, can confirm. Um, those (laughs) ones that just have like the ones that just have like that long curved beak, um, sticking out, Mm -hmm. those are called ibises. And I saw those all over Sydney when I was there and I was just taking pictures every time I was like, what the fuck is that? Uh, (laughs) it's like, can everyone else see that? Uh, but uh but uh but yeah no you you were both you're both saying very very eloquent things about this movie and i agree with it completely
3: i thought that the ending sequence oh yeah I, oh my yeah. god um and and again uh in the elizabeth moss school of face ass, uh acting it uh, <laughs> the, face acting, um face acting um <laughs> The, the actor who played her father, his... Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah Oh my, oh my God. I I think it was probably, I think it was about 10 solid minutes of crying after that movie ended. It just was so honest and so raw and... Whew.
2: Yeah, no, it's a good place to end and now we'll all spend 10 minutes crying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as we, after we finish taping this episode of the podcast, <laughs> uh, this is a, this is, this is a binge it for me.
1: It's also getting a binge it for me. And it's getting a binge it for me. Well, uh, what do you know? Binge. So the triple binges <laughs> are Miss Juneteenth, Baby Teeth, and Lucky Grandma?
3: Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Amazing. And did we all give Irresistible, a send it back?
2: <laughs> uh, you and I did. Uh, okay. Well, Jen, that's I all that matters.
1: <laughs> I, I did, I did <laughs> in solidarity. A because yeah.
3: it sounds like an awful movie, and again B because you have to rent it for 19.99.
1: <laughs> right, who knows where that money's going?
2: And I told her the twist, uh, and uh, so she can speak with authority when she says that it's not good either.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, Baby Teeth is available on Amazon, Apple, Google, and it's unrated, but would probably be R for language and sexuality. And that's it. That is it. it. We're clocking in at two and a half hours. So
2: <laughs> this is an epic epic episode uh and if you're all still listening you will be happy to know that going forward Rebecca and i are going to try switching to twice a month episodes um so that we can uh, avoid exactly what just happened
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's see if they even let me upload this giant file it might end up being two episodes anyway we'll see
2: or we'll just have to cut all Nima's parts. Sorry, no no guest. Sorry. Nima, <laughs> third time will be the charm.
3: Um. <laughs> You'll just have to cut out my edit, but if you can do just a video of me arm flailing as as an yeah. accompany to this, yeah. that would be... <laughs> we will send that
2: out to our listeners. Um, and then you can bill us for the rentals that you had to pay for. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, they were fine. They weren't I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: What is that in pounds? Um, thank you so much for joining us from across the ocean. Um, and whatever time zone you're in right now, uh, Jen, it's been a real treat. Well,
3: thank you so much for having me. This was super, super fun. Um, and you know, you know, I love you guys. I huge, huge fan of the pod. And I love you guys as people and I miss you beyond words.
2: Oh, much. Love you. miss you too. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for cramming all these movies in. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Uh, and hopefully at some point in the not so distant future, you can once again tape an episode in person with us.
3: <sighs> One can <dream>.
1: Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone for listening Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of The Binge Be sure to subscribe on iTunes If you're an iPad uh, iPad, If you're an Apple <laughs> iPhone user On Android you can find us on Stitcher And SoundCloud um, Jason is Al on Twitter at
2: XS Baggage
1: And I'm Fight Balance Thank you so much for listening Bye guys Bye bye
2: Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason.
0: You made it to the end, that's amazing. There goes the binge.